Hello and welcome to Obsession, where we get horribly obsessed, highly obsessed, <laughs> hilariously obsessed with things that other people might find odd. Nothing is too obscure, too creepy or too weird for us to research obsessively. I'm Heidi. And I'm Rebecca. Join us in being obsessed. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi, Becky. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. Look at this. Two podcasts in two weeks. I mean... We are back with it. We are back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I'm so proud of myself because I did not watch one second of the coronation. I watched every second of the coronation. Oh, really? And it was as agonisingly boring as you could imagine. See, I was just watching uh, documentaries about hoaxes and scam artists. Oh, I see. Yeah. I I, I was watching, um, oh, that, what about Anna Delvey? Inventing Anna, have you seen that? I saw snippets of it. I got sort of bored halfway through and I... Oh, right. See, I've I've been following that story for a few years, so I I actually really liked it. What did you like about it? Um, Do you know, I'm just really fascinated by scam artists because it's just something I could never do. I couldn't pull it off. I, I'm too much of a coward. Uh, same, same. And also <laughs> I've got too much of a conscience. And so I'm really intrigued by scam artists. It's almost like they're another species. Yeah, so today we are talking about a scam, a hoax, not a particularly famous one anymore, but should be more famous than it is because it's an amazing story. It is. And it's a story that you suggested, Becky. I did, indeed. Yeah. So after the carnage, that was last week's story, I thought, yeah. <laughs> I thought, great, a nice, funny hoax story set in the oldie worldy times. Oh, no, no, no. It's definitely not that. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I mean, it's a story about a hoax and it is set in the 18th century and the premise does sound hilarious. But when you look into it, it's really very sinister and very sad. So how did you hear about Mary Todd? Oh, I can't remember how I heard about it, but I do remember my first response to it and why I dug deep into it. Because I thought that it was just like a cute little story, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read into it and I realised the layers of um, that the story contains were endless and I got really addicted to it. Yeah, I I really fell down that rabbit hole. Ha <laughs> ha, no pun really. intended. No pun In intended. a big, big, big way. But I'll tell you what, last week we had a main character called St. James. This week we have a main character called St. Andre. And I'm just really sick of these men with saint in their names. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get into the story because it is a doozy. And it's quite a long story. It's longer than I thought it would be. Because as you said, there are lots of Oh, endless, endless. Yes. 
And let's see, do we have any trigger warnings? Uh, miscarriage and men being medi- horrible and, <laughs> and, and medical medical malpractice and abuse. Yeah. Okay. All right. So in late September 1726, a doctor and mad midwife called John Howard was approached by a member of the Toft family. And that's kind of hilarious to us because, you know, we are Australian. We did have a past Australian PM called John Howard. I know, and I have so much trouble with that. (laughs) Anyway, some reporters say it was Anne Toft who approached Howard that day. However, the third confession of Mary Toft states that it's her husband, Joshua. So let's just say it was him for now. So Joshua tells the doctor that his wife, Mary, had just suffered a miscarriage and hands Howard a pot that appears to contain a malformed fetus. Howard was astonished at what he saw and stated on no uncertain terms that no woman could have produced such a thing from their body. The fetus somewhat resembled a small headless cat, yet also had a spine that could have come from an eel. The Toffs lived in a very in the very poor market town of Godalming, which is 50 miles southwest of London, and the doctor was ushered into their small and humble home by Joshua's mother, Anne Toft. Now, remember Anne? She's an exceptionally nasty piece. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And she's a very important part of the story, as is her daughter, Margaret. Howard is told that Mary, who appears to be in her bed, experiencing great pain and had a miscarriage the previous month. And then another the night before producing the bizarre creature that had been handed to him the previous day. Mary goes into labour shortly after Howard arrives, very conveniently, and Anne, who is a midwife herself, assists her daughter-in-law in the delivery of another strange object. What Howard witnessed looked exactly like a vaginal birth, and he could clearly see the object being pushed out of her body. On closer inspection, Howard saw that it was not one, but a collection of objects, specifically animal parts. He described what he saw as being three legs of a cat of tabby colour and one leg of a rabbit. The guts were as a cat's, And in them were three pieces of the backbone of an eel. He was understandably intrigued, but wondered out loud about the absence of a head. I should mention here that um, these body parts, or sorry, animal body parts that came out of her actually did come out of her cervix. Yes. So, yeah, it wasn't just, you know, sort of opening their legs and letting them drop out it was no they were very up there yes so I think at this point we should actually talk a bit about the woman in the bed and her family 
Mary Toft was born Mary Denya in 1701 to poor farmers. She was married at 17 to 18-year-old Joshua Toft, a wool textile worker, and his official job title was clothier. The Toft family had once been the head of a very successful cloth manufacturing business, but within a generation, their company failed and they lost both their wealth and the status they had within the community. Joshua was on the bottom rung of the textile industry uh, and he barely brought home enough money to keep his family alive. Mary had to supplement the family income by labouring in a hop field two hours walk away from her home. By the age of 25, Mary had given birth to two children and lost one to smallpox. Life was excruciatingly hard and neither Mary nor Joshua had the skills or the education nor the opportunity to break out of the endless and unforgiving cycle of drudgery and disappointments. The description of Mary in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography states, Mary, an illiterate, was of small stature with healthy, strong constitution and a sullen temper. This is really the only description that we have of the woman who was the centre of the drama, but we could probably guess that Mary's supposed sullenness was the result of grief, poverty and unrelenting exhaustion. She also had very problematic in-laws, which you will see as the story continues. So John Howard, oh, I cannot say John Howard without thinking <laughs> of former PM John Howard. It's just you, Are you getting the same visual I'm getting? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So John Howard returned the next day and Anne Toft handed him more parts that she claimed Mary had expelled during the night. Howard made many more visits over the next month and witnessed Mary birthing the limbs of cats and a single rabbit's head. On one memorable day, she pushed nine dead baby rabbits from her body. Her creepy mother-in-law, Anne, and her cr equally creepy sister-in-law, Margaret, were always hanging around and helping. At some point, Howard moved Mary to Guildford, both because it was close to his home and he could observe her more often, and also because the constant nosiness from the townspeople was getting too much to bear. Convinced that there was at least a chance that Mary could be a medical marvel, Howard sent off letters to the most prestigious doctors and scientists in England, inviting them to witness Mary and her miraculous monster babies in person. One of the people he wrote to was the secretary of King George I. Instead of dismissing Howard as a prankster or a crackpot, King George <laughs> was interested enough to order Royal Surgeon Nathaniel St. Andre and Secretary to the Prince of Wales, Samuel Molyneux, to investigate. Mary's chamber in Guildford was now being graced by noblemen who, along with Howard, watched the expulsion of dead rabbit number 15. Luckily for St. Andre and Molyneux, Howard had pickled all the rabbits in jars and handled them over for examination. 
Saint Andre, a very interesting person, did some impressive mental gymnastics to convince himself that he had witnessed a miracle and not a hoax. You know, if Saint Andre had been alive today, he would have been, say, plastic surgeon to the Kardashians. And he would have pushed himself into being a regular feature of the show. Totally. So his post as royal doctor only really came about because he was Swiss and he could speak German. And King George, as you know, could only speak German too, of course. That's it. That's why he got the job. He was the perfect person to be caught up in this because he loved being talked about and courted fame and attention. Even though the bunnies were obviously of different ages, some being a few months old and others just fetuses, and even though there were remnants of hay and grass in the stomach of an older rabbit, Saint Andre insisted that there was still the possibility of a medical marvel. Mary told the gentleman of her own theories. She had been heavily pregnant while working in the hot field, she explained, when a rabbit ran past her, triggering an intense craving for some rabbit meat. She and some of the other women workers had chased after the rabbit, but to no avail. The bunny was just too fast for them. Mary was tormented by her pregnancy cravings and could think of nothing but eating a nice rabbit stew. Sadly, she could not afford to buy even one rabbit and her cravings went unfulfilled. St. Andre was thrilled to hear this story and declared it to be an example of maternal impression. What is maternal impression, you ask? It was a medical theory that had been going around for some time that stated that the development of a fetus could be affected by the emotional stimulus experienced by the mother. Say a baby is born with webbed fingers. This could be attributed to the mother having been startled by a frog or a toad when she was pregnant. You might remember that cleft palates used to be called hair lips. That was because they were thought to be caused by the proximity of hares and rabbits to a pregnant woman. Women were warned about spending too much time with pets when expecting in case the family dog or cat imprinted some of its traits onto the fetus. It seems crazy to us now that people could even entertain these ideas, but this was a world that knew nothing about genetics and needed explanations for congenital conditions. So this story that Mary told was exactly what St. Andre and Howard wanted to hear. For them, it could be evidence that maternal impression was indeed <laughs> real. Their excitement wasn't shared by everyone, however, King George needed more proof and sent another German surgeon by the name of Syracuse Arles to Mary's birthing chamber. Arles performed a very painful mm. and invasive examination of poor Mary and also of the rabbits that were birthed in his presence. There were dung pellets, dung pellets in the rectums of some of the rabbits that contained corn, mm. hay and straw. And most of the rabbits looked as though they'd had their muscles cut from their bones with a cleaver. Alice smelt a hoax 
and his suspicions fell not just on Mary, but also on John Howard. Uh, Yet another man was brought in to examine poor Mary. This time it was Sir Richard Manningham, an eminent doctor to London's upper crust. You can imagine the humiliation um, that Mary was experiencing at this time, not to mention the intense physical pain. Mannington was immediately sceptical and declared that the object that Mary birthed earlier that day to be nothing but a piece of hog's bladder. He accused Mary of being a hoaxer, and this is the first and only time we have record of her crying during this awful ordeal. Howard and St. Andre were now in damage control. Their reputations were in danger, and even St. Andre was considering that they may be such a thing as bad publicity. By this time, Mary Toft and her gynecological feats were a media sensation. She and the doctors who championed her were being parodied in newspaper cartoons and on the stage. For the weeks that she was famous, Mary became part of the popular culture at the time and absolutely nothing was within her control. Mary was brought to London where she would be kept under constant surveillance. She endured examination after examination from an unending stream of curious male doctors Mary had previously described the pain of birthing animals like the tearing of brown paper and at no point in the records is there any concern at all for her health or her physical or mental anguish. There's a brilliant essay by Karen Harvey called What Mary Toft Felt, Women's Voices, Pain, Power and the Body and you can find it in the History Workshop Journal on the Oxford Academic website. Harvey attempts to uncover who Mary was as a human being and her experiences of these events, as well as highlighting the disdain of the doctors for Mary's pain. Harvey also shows that Mary was isolated even from the sympathy of other women. Mm. She writes, the lack of concern for Toff's condition is also observable among the many women gathered around Mary Toft throughout the affair. Toft describes how early on in the miscarriage, women offered her support, working for her, working for her to allow her to leave the hop garden without losing her pay. Yet, otherwise, the kin and neighbours who surrounded her showed no sympathy or concern. This quote really drove home to me just how lonely she must have been at this Mm. time. And we don't hear that much about her husband, Joshua, but he clearly is not a source of comfort or support. And as we'll see later, his loyalties lay more with his mother than with his wife. Things would get worse for Mary. She became very ill, most likely from infections. Remember, these items are being inserted into her and sometimes there for days, weeks. She briefly lost consciousness after a seizure. Then a porter was caught sneaking a small dead rabbit into her room. He claimed that Mary's sister-in-law, Margaret, had paid him to find the smallest rabbit possible and to bring it to Mary. Mary insisted that the rabbit was for her dinner. On the same day, it was also revealed that Joshua, her husband, 
had been seen buying huge amounts of young rabbits. Mary stubbornly refused to admit the hoax until Manningham gave her a terrible ultimatum. Tell the truth or submit to surgery so that he could see her inner workings for himself. Now, surgery in the 18th century was a horrifying prospect. Remember, there was no anesthesia, no disinfectant, and this threat was enough to make Mary's resolve completely crumble. Her first confession was on December the 7th and was taken down by one of her detractors, James Douglas. The transcript of the first confession starts with the heartbreaking words, I will not go on any longer, thus I shall sooner hang myself. She tells the strange story of an unnamed woman who was the wife of a knife grinder. In this story, the knife grinder's wife tells her a plan that will ensure that she will never want for money as long as she lives. Her words from the confession are, she fetched a rabbit, which was a little bigger than a sidling rabbit of 14 nights old. She stripped it wholly and tried to put it up whole, which I told her I was not able to bear it. It was like to kill me and I would not do it. Now, can you imagine? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, hard... I, I'm trying not to imagine it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard yeah. enough getting it out, never mind putting it up there. Yeah. Mm. This bizarre story continues with the woman cutting up and mutilating the dead rabbit until it can fit easily inside Mary's vagina. The men at the proceedings did not believe this tale and Mary was forced to make another confession the following day. In Mary's second confession, she reveals there was no such thing as a woman advising me to any such thing nor never brought me any rabbits. It was not until her third confession on December the 12th that Mary revealed the true mastermind behind the scheme. Guess who? (laughs) Her mother-in-law, Anne Toft, really lowering the bar for (laughs) mother-in-laws in a big way. From the transcript of the confession... She, meaning Anne Toft, told me to strip a young chit or cat. She persuaded me to throw the head or skin away and told me that the guts and liver I should save and call for the pot and let it fall into the pot and sent a woman, Mary Gill, that she might hear it fall in the pot. So it's a little hard to understand because there's not a lot of punctuation. But basically, Anne devised a way for a neighbour, Mary Gill, to be present when Mary expelled offal from her vagina. Mary then says that Anne explained her full plan and, quoting from the confession, she told me that if I would do it and go through, I should get a good living and be ruled by her and not tell of her. She goes into detail about how how her mother-in-law would cut up pieces of animals and reform them into a hybrid monster and then force them inside of her daughter-in-law. This is serious. That woman, serious issues. I I mean... (laughs) 
that would have to be a form of sexual violence. Absolutely, it? absolutely. And to think her mother, her mother-in-law was also a midwife. So you wonder about the psychology around it all. You know why she's violating her daughter-in-law in this way. It's mm, and, and and don't forget that the husband is right there. Mm. Not not just letting it happen, but he's right there, you know, helping with the whole thing. It's it's really really so strange. Yeah, I don't think I like the Toft family. I don't think so either. <laughs> then we get to the first visit from John Howard and his problem with there being no head amongst the animal pieces. And again, quoting from the confession, when I was alone, she, meaning Anne, would ask me, what shall we do for that? So she ordered me to get a rabbit, which my husband got for me, boiled and ate. She ordered me to keep the bones of the head and one foot because one of the cats was lost. <laughs> oh my God. We have to complete these hybrid monsters, don't you? One, oh. one cat leg, one rabbit leg. Oh. Oh. I threw away some of the bones. The rest I gave to her. Two days later, after she put up the underjaw that was like to tear oh. me to pieces, it was so jagged, then forced her to take it out again. Oh, it's, it's unbearable. Yeah. Mary then describes the horrific pain she endured. I was all night in the most violent rack and torture. I said I was ready to be torn to pieces, the bone ready to come through me. Mary endured this day after day. When Howard appeared, Mary was then forced to expel dead animal parts and skeletons from her body and the sharp nails of the rabbits and the jagged edges of the bones caused excruciating pain and injury. <laughs> and injury. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and don't forget that she really did have a miscarriage. Yes, like yes. The month before, so. Yeah. Yeah, her her insides are already in a very raw and vulnerable very, state. Very, I'm shocked that she survived, survived all this at all. Yeah. Anyway, so when she left for Guildford, Anne gave her two pre-cut rabbits to keep in her pockets, and instructed her to insert them herself when she was left alone. The men did believe this version of the confession, and Mary was charged with being a notorious and vile cheat. <laughs> I, yeah <laughs> she's the victim in all this ah she was sentenced to several months in bridewell prison where the spectacle continued and bridewell prison was a particularly awful place during her stay in prison mary was exhibited to members of the paying public who jeered and laughed at the rabbit woman of godaning after around four months of imprisonment and regular public shamings Mary was released. Also publicly humiliated were the doctors involved, but we don't really care about them, do we? <laughs> no. Needless to say, careers were destroyed. The newspapers and the satirists were relentless. The most famous take on the scandal was by artist William Hogarth, whose print titled The Kanukulari depicts Mary surrounded by her doctors 
her bedroom floor covered in leaping bunnies. So actually, do you know what? Now that I've said that, I just remember that's where I first saw it was the artwork. And oh, okay. Yeah, and you get this whimsical, cute um, image of like <laughs> a live little bunny rabbit. Yes, know, jumping around, and I think yes. if you, I think anyone who does actually know the name Mary Toft, especially England where it is a little bit known, um, they still have that vision of like just a, a sweet little tale of a baby birthing these little cute rabbits. Yes, not not the not the uh, <laughs> yeah Frankenstein monster <laughs> Frankenstein um, <laughs> cat rabbit creatures. Oh gosh, oh dear, oh. So Mary did not make any money from the hoax. And as a matter of fact, that's why her prison sentence was so short, because she couldn't really be imprisoned as a con artist when she hadn't really been making money. Yeah. See, that, that was the part of the scam that they hadn't thought through. <laughs> oh, only that part. Yeah, only that part. <laughs> only that part, not the only part. Only that part. It was kind of like, uh, all right, I will make hybrid <laughs> Frankenstein monster bunny Shove them at up hybrid. into a newly miscarrying woman's cervix. Yes, and then <laughs> profit. <laughs> but they hadn't exactly thought of how, you know, they would profit from that. So... I have a theory. Yes. I don't think it was ever about the profit. I do, think you, that, mm. do you think that Anne Toft mm-hmm. hated her daughter-in-law so much she just wanted to do something really vile and no, abusive towards no, her? Not even as simple as that. Not, not a hatred of her actual daughter-in-law. I think the woman was a bit of a psychopath. You look at how psychopaths, uh, criminal psychopaths, I should say, yeah. how they behave and the things they do. Everything she's doing here is psychopathic. She's causing injury. She's, and again, I come back to, she was a midwife. So yes. I'm wondering, I don't know, was she somehow sexually abused herself at some point, right? Did she find the women's genitalia to be something ugly and to be tormented. Do you understand what I'm saying? I feel like there is yeah. a, a huge mental dysfunction around genitalia, around her role, around the fact that Anne Toft too was a woman. And let's face it, for women in that era, it was just yeah. nonstop awfulness and cruelty. I feel it was somehow a manifestation of her own mental illness. I don't think it was ever about the money. I think that's how she sold it to Mary. Oh, look, I mean, she could not have been a well woman. No. Doing that, causing pain, not caring at all about the pain that she was causing, even coming up with the idea in the first place. Yes, I know. Yes. I I mean, even that in itself is just so incredibly strange. I think it was a form of molestation of her uh, daughter-in-law. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So um, after Mary was released, she went home and returned to her ordinary, dismal life. And I would like to know about how her relationship with her in-laws was affected, but there are no more records of the family dynamics. I just have to re- imagine that things were very awkward. So... Mm. The Godalming Parish Register shows that in 1728, she gave birth to a daughter called Elizabeth 
And the birth is recorded as her first child after her pretend rabbit breeding. So even official parish records were throwing shade. They did that a lot. Actually. They actually did that a lot. I love reading yeah. through old parish records. Just every so often, you know, you get like a really snarky comment from oh, the God. officiating minister and you go, whoa, <laughs> nasty. <laughs> she did make a brief return to public notoriety in 1740 when she went to prison for receiving stolen goods. Then she fades into obscurity until her death in 1763. At the age of 62. I cannot believe she lived that long. No, and I can't believe she managed to have another child after all oh. the damage to her body. Oh, my gosh. Mm. How strong must this woman have been? Yeah. And can you imagine her life after that in this small town? Yeah. She would have been the talk of the town. She would have been a massive joke. And she's got these in-laws who she... You know, she exposed them in her confession. They never, they never received any punishment. But still, no. still, you know, I, I, I can't imagine um, her life would have been particularly peaceful after that. I don't think it was particularly peaceful before that. Either. No, no, mm. no. And and look, um, when it comes to things like conning and hoaxing the elite. You know, really, I'm I'm kind of all for it. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't really care that much. But if you are going to do something like that, do it to yourself. You know, shove shove the carcasses up your own orifices. Leave your daughter-in-law out of it. You know? Yeah. Hey, listen. Yeah. Uh, just I ponder John yeah. Howard and his role in all this. Oh yeah. I mean, even in that era, he kind of honestly believed it. Oh, maybe if he saw the first one come out of the cervix. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a point. Yeah. Oh, look, honestly, I think that people put themselves into a state where they just want to believe something so badly. And sometimes find people find themselves in the middle of a story and – they go, wow, you know, I could be in a starring role in this story and they mm. want it to be true. Yeah, yeah. And and I really think that the doctors in this were so driven by fame, so driven by the need for a reputation and a need for fortune. And, and just plain need to pontificate as they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were kind of like, the debate bros on Twitter. <laughs> they were like, yeah, yeah, but I need more proof. You know, the fact that the fact that this terrible thing is happening in your life doesn't matter. It's just a philosophical argument. Mm. Now we'll give you another painful examination. Yeah, and another one. Here. And another one. Yeah. yeah you come have a look well, too. Hey mate, come have a look. <laughs> oh, oh well, that that was like- I'd like to say that things have completely changed, but I'm not so sure they have. <laughs> oh, you yeah. listen to a lot of women's birthing experiences now. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. There, there have always been problems uh, when it comes to women's health and, yeah. and, and women's issues being listened to properly by medical professionals. 
So this yeah. is one of the things that really interests me about history, Heidi, is discovering yeah. them more because you always uh, you, you hear so many fables or myths or tales, or cute little quirky things from history. And usually when you dig a little deeper into them, as we like to do and obsess yes. a bit, yeah, there's always a lot more layers to it. As yeah, the story of Mary Toft. Yeah, because people forget these were real people with real feelings, real psychology, and they lived lives before and after these events. Mm. Yeah. So that was a terrible story, Becky. Thank you so much. No worries. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm always happy to throw you a nice miserable story to obsess oh, over. Of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I hope that the rest of you enjoyed this story on a certain level. Um, and we hope to see you again very, very soon. Very soon. Take care of yourselves. Stay obsessed. And goodbye. Bye. <laughs>